You're listening to the Law and Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the difficult questions where business and the law intersect to help you run a smarter business and avoid costly mistakes. Brought to you by Verna Law PC, a full-service law firm focusing on patents, trademarks, copyrights, domain names, and advertising law. For more information, call 914-908-6757 or send an email to anthony at vernalaw.com for more information and welcome to the law and business podcast i'm here with john rubenstein from rubenstein phillips lewis smith in london how'd i do that is brilliant <laughs> anthony <laughs> and we are both in australia yes and we're all jet lagged <laughs> i've been here for a couple days so the jet lag for yeah. me is so do you reckon that if we put up for an Australian trademark called jet lag, we'd be ruled out for descriptiveness? <laughs> I, well, what are we selling with jet lagged? Travel services. <laughs> I think that might be a little on the descriptive side of life. Well, I'd argue that this was elusive to the exercise of traveling and the selling of traveling services. So this provides us with a suitable entry to the topic of uh, whether a mark is unregisterable because it is inherently incapable of being distinctive and whether it is descriptive. And I guess that when you travel, part of the quality of traveling is being jet-lagged. Not always. If, if you're going north and south in the same time zone, there's, there's no jet lag. Going New York to Miami, there's no jet lag. Uh, but it's equality. It doesn't have to be consistent quality. <laughs> and uh, we have a number of cases in the United Kingdom uh, where we are subject to the European Union regime on trademarks, um, Regulation 40 of uh, 1994, and trademarks... Act 1994, which has stood the test of time. It's become an interesting battleground between brand registrars and the trademarks registrar, who is fighting a rearguard action uh, using the swing doors of Section 31B, which is a, an absolute prohibition that if a mark does not distinguish the goods as belonging to one particular owner, it will be ruled out. And Section 31C of the Act, uh, which rules out marks which are descriptive of what is being offered. So it sounds like that the UK Intellectual Property Office, as compared to the United States Patent and Trademark Office, likes to, to kick things out a little bit more. And it sounds as if there are some brands that, that the UK IPO doesn't like, even though they would technically qualify as trademarks. Well, the reality is you have to work quite hard in some cases to persuade the assessor that uh, the mark is capable of being registered. And it is, to my mind, often a game of linguistic ability <laughs> to persuade hearing officers who have particular criteria established over now uh, 20 years to depart from their practice. And uh, my guess is that it's a sort of first weeding out process. I mentioned to you a particular slogan called um, 
choose your weapons, <laughs> uh, which uh, failed. I like it. On well, I thought it was a very good one, <laughs> but it appeared on T-shirts and it didn't appear consistently across a brand which had been in use for a period of time, and it appeared to be rejected on the basis that it is just a T-shirt decoration and inherently incapable of distinguishing the T-shirt itself as the product of a particular owner. So when the relevant section of the public looks at the T-shirt, uh, it will just see a nice T-shirt with choose your weapon. So in the United States, we would have a rejection called ornamental use of the trademark, in, whereas the trademark is just... A, a phrase that's on top of, of clothing, not usually where consumers expect to see a particular brand. Is that the same issue here that, that you're having with this mark? Let's put it like this way. If there's an established mark which is imprinted on a T-shirt, then that doesn't fall foul of that exercise. Otherwise, uh, proprietors of Louis Vuitton and Chanel <laughs> and other luxury goods would have some difficulty... For, uh, using their brand logos actually affixed to the goods. Because obviously the ultimate purpose of the trademark is to identify the owner of the goods. Yes, but some of those examples are a little different as well. So like Louis Vuitton and Chanel, we fully, as consumers, expect to see Chanel stamped on a bag. We fully accept, expect to see Louis Vuitton stamped on the bag. As consumers, at least in the United States, the way that, that the, the case law has come down is that as consumers, we don't expect to see that, that phrase on a T-shirt. So this may be the difference between a, an invented mark and a slogan. Okay. So uh, I don't know, how do you treat slogans in the United States? As, as any other trademark, honestly. So that if the issue here, in, the issue with, with your choose your weapon example in the United States would be ornamental use. So in order to get over that particular hump, my advice to apparel clients is always either the tag on the back of the T-shirt needs to have the phrase uh, or, or slogan that you're creating, or you need to create hang tags as well, because that's then going to qualify as, as trademark use. In the United States. Uh, so now it's not away, an ornamental use. We wouldn't get away with that in the United Kingdom. <laughs> um, and I wanted to tackle you on something that uh, we raised in preparation for this not discussion, <laughs> which uh, was the registration of Burger King, uh, which probably in the United Kingdom would be regarded as straightforward, incapable of registration because it is purely descriptive. How did it get registered in the States? Well, I obviously don't have the history of of the mark in front of me yeah. and i don't have the case file my thinking is that it's not really descriptive is that it is suggestive of having the best burger you've ever had so uh, whether or not that's the truth is a different story of course but to me being the king of burgers means that it is the best burger that the consumer has ever had well perhaps the best citizen in the burger world <laughs> Taking that through, uh, it is interesting that there's sort of a shyness about registering slogans in the United Kingdom. There was a well-known uh, case involving Audi's Vorsprung durch Technik, which literally means progress through technology. Uh, 
And this went all the way to the European Union Court of Justice uh, for determination as to whether or not it was capable of identifying the goods as those of Audi manufacturers. And the court reviewed the criteria and overruled the lower European Union uh, courts who had reviewed this mark by stating that you cannot add extra tiers of registrability requirement to slogans apart it should be treated just the same as any other mark but that required a trip to the European Union Court of Justice and basically it has to be immediately identifiable as the goods of a proprietor to the relevant market and I always find the relevant market a very interesting concept. <laughs> Do you have a similar view in the States? Um, not necessarily for, for slogans, because we just treat slogans as if it were any other trademark or service mark. So that if uh, an automobile company created an ad slogan, and the only place that, that that slogan is going to be found in the advertising materials, it still is an acceptable trademark, because the owner... Of, of the the company excuse me the the company the user the applicant of the mark mm. is using it in conjunction with those goods and services and for goods and services the advertising is is acceptable um, I have a suspicion that uh, the particular mark became uh, inherently identified with Audi after a period of use uh, but this is a problem for um, trademark brand advisors and people mm -hmm. who uh, advise the use of marks because often there is no acquired use to justify any distinctiveness. And so it falls at the first fence. And this is a problem which a lot of brand consultants have, trying to devise new marks that haven't uh, reflected somebody else's um, goods. It's a difficult market to find something that is a slogan which is immediately catchy without it being regarded just as the slogan <laughs> advertising the goods rather than a trademark. And there's a period of transition which needs to be uh, overcome. And it's very difficult to register a slogan straight away because if it doesn't refer to the mark, therefore avoiding descriptiveness, right. it fails to distinguish the proprietor as the owner of it because there is no knowledge amongst the populace as to who is the owner of the mark. Right. Now, whereas in the United States, if it is descriptive, it is just descriptive of the goods and services or yep. generic. Uh, you know, it's just, just the, the actual goods and services themselves. Whether or not it's a slogan or some kind of, say, line of, of products from a company, that relevance is never actually taken into, into effect. Sometimes the difficulty with registering uh, slogans comes in the fact that advertising itself is not an accepted specimen in the Patent and Trademark Office. So there, there has to be some other uses of, of the slogan with the goods and services. Yeah. And so sometimes that can be a little tricky, mm. but again, it, it, it's, there are lots of ways around that particular yeah, issue. I had a just recently on an application for registration of a mark. Uh, I had this problem where the registrar took the view that the slogan was purely an advertisement for another or the services offered under another mark. Whoa! And 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> My uh, client had two marts. One was already registered, and the other one it wished to register alongside. Uh, and uh, the registrar adopted an argument that the secondary mark was actually an advertisement for the services offered under the first mark. Uh, so <laughs> descriptive and incapable of distinguishing in itself the services being offered by the client. But we've adopted a slightly different um, approach in the European Union. Uh, there's a nice case called uh, Ohim uh, versus Erpo Mobile Work, decided about 2004, uh, concerning a German mark which was as follows, Das Prinzip der Bequemlichkeit, which literally means the Prince of Comfort. And it went all the way to a sec uh, the U European Union Court of Justice Second Chamber because it had been declared that if you describe a piece of furniture as the Prince of Comfort, it is descriptive of the furniture in question. Meaning that it's descriptive of being comfortable? Well, this is an interesting <laughs> argument because a furniture, a furniture is not, per se, comfortable. <laughs> it is. Uh, it can be. Uh, you you and I have been to plenty of conventions where the furniture is not comfortable. Well, that's right. But the Prince of Comfort is quite a lot different in describing furniture than, for example, Burger King is to describe a collection of meat patties. I'd say that Burger King, using the word burger, describes the goods which are being hyped up by the use of the mark. Whereas if you say the prince of comfort, why does that actually hype furniture? Because comfort could relate to a variety of occupations. Comfort is not dependent on furniture. So this, as I say, was very tightly contested and that it is really that case, along with the Audi case, which caused the European Union Court of Justice to state clearly that slogans should not be subjected to a stricter test for assessment of distinctiveness and inherent capability of distinguishing the goods of one trader from those of another than ordinary marks. Do you have any keys, uh, cases in your um, pantheon of trademark decisions uh, which have addressed the question of distinctiveness? Well, I, for the United States, we have several categories, uh, and it's not necessarily case law, although case law has, has defined the, you know, sharpened those definitions, but we have five categories of trademarks. One would be a generic word, you know, chair, lamp, bed, which is not registrable under any conditions. Yeah. And then descriptive marks do describe the, the qualities of the goods and services, mm. so red ball, orange ball, things like that, that unless it's, uh, there is secondary meaning, it is not registrable. And for descriptive marks, secondary meaning requires some showing mm. that ba the consumer base, your, your target market, relates you, this this descriptive mark that you have to your goods and services. I'm interested in what you say about Red Bull. Would the color itself <laughs> be registrable in relation to what are called fortified, what are called tonic drinks? Ooh. Huh. Well, 
a tonic drink is not is not red. Correct. So I would think that it would be except cherry aid. Okay. Well, that's only one of, of yeah. many. Because when I think of tonic drinks, I'm usually just thinking of tonic water. Yeah. Um, well, so does a tonic as well. Yeah, so Pepper, Dr. Pepper's. Dr. Well, that's, Pepper, yeah. I've never had a Dr. Pepper. I've avoided it through oh, all hideous. my life, and I've managed to I'm, survive. I'm, I'm going to get in trouble with some of, with at least I know a few people who, who will listen to this. But to me, Dr. Pepper is hideous. I, I cannot. I, this I, is I, um, <laughs> the freedom of expression under the First Amendment. And, uh, you will be quite safe on that score. But to me, red doesn't seem to be a, a, an inherent quality of, of any of tonic drinks in general. So I would say that that's registrable. In the United States, the classic example is M&M's, where the ad slogan, M&M's melt in your mouth, not in your hand. Yes. Uh, Isn't that descriptive? Time. Yes. So straightforward descriptive. Straightforward descriptiveness. Did, was uh, it registered? It is registered, yes. So how did they get around it? Well, again, it's the secondary meaning yeah. portion of descriptiveness where they had plenty of examples from using that particular slogan So by pure time. repetition, well, repetition, 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 they managed to get it into yes. a state where the registrar would recognize that it was registrable. Because consumers understood that that right. phrase was associated with those goods and services. So right. it's repetition. It's partially fame because without money, you're not going to get to yeah. that particular level where consumers know. Okay. So now we take it back to the what I call the swing door, that if you're not inherently distinctive, uh, then you risk being descriptive. And if, you're inherent, if you are descriptive, you cannot be inherently distinctive. And we had an interesting case. And remember, I started off with Choose Your Weapons. Yes. But th there was a parallel case which uh, involved the use of the word money hub, or the words money hub, for financial uh, and accounting software. And uh, it was opposed. And the opponent argued that this was purely descriptive of the function of what was being done by this product because it was managing it was managing money, money and financial transactions for its consumers correct but actually when you look at what a hub is <laughs> it wasn't exactly descriptive because when you use the expression money hub what does it actually mean and the registrar took the view that although it alluded to the function of the product it didn't actually describe it. So when we look at the Prince of Comfort, that's not actually talking about a piece of furniture. It's talking about an illusion as to what it may convey. So they managed to get around the problem of being descriptive at the same time as being cap it, the mark being capable of distinguishing the goods of that uh, producer, or in fact, it was the software of that producer from the software produced by everyone else. And so that currently is the state of play in the United Kingdom. Uh, brand consultants uh, have to be a little more careful to make sure that uh, whatever they just produce is not a, an exercise in making block applications and waiting for 28 of the 30 to fail um, <laughs> because it just clutters up the regist register. Sure. Well, and, and in the U.S., the, the register is pretty cluttered anyway, <laughs> so I don't think that we're 
worrying about getting kicking marks out to do that. But in the U.S., the way I would would have attacked some of these some of these issues is that I probably would have argued suggestiveness because we don't have this this, this sure. elusive use. Uh, I would have argued suggestiveness because the Prince of Comfort obviously is not describing furniture because some furniture is not comfortable, as you said, but we are suggesting a state how a consumer should think. Well, this is of the, a the function of advertising. Yeah. But it is whether or not when addressed to the market to which the goods are going to be sold, the services supplied, they would see that as distinctive of the goods of or the services of the supplier. And those are basically the tests that have to be applied. We're in a fairly comfortable place, in my view, now. And a lot of the uh, applications now are as a result of brand consultants making block applications for registration of masses of uh, slogans. And they use a scattergun approach. And this is, in my view, making the registrar's job quite difficult because they have to consider and deal with right. each of these applications. It's enormously time-consuming. Sure. And uh, it's very cheap in our country to apply for a trademark. And if it doesn't get past the first hurdle, you just abandon it. It's actually cheaper to do that than to go and research whether or not the mark is capable of registration in advance. So maybe our registrars are giving us a good service by ensuring that we don't see loads of common or garden uh, expressions or um, new trademarks suddenly appear which would otherwise be used by the public in their language. So there we are. That's the state of play in the United Kingdom. And in the United States, I always try to discuss with my clients the need for having a mark that's at least suggestive. Uh, hopefully, uh, clients come to come to both of us with arbitrary trademarks uh, and fanciful trademarks. And in the United States, arbitrary trademarks are just words and phrases that have no meaning to the goods and services. And fanciful marks are traditionally like Kodak, something that has been completely invented for this particular use. And and I always try to tell clients that there's little difference between what American trademark law says and what your marketing advisor says yeah. <laughs> because, uh, and we see this, uh, you know, I see this all the time on, on Shark Tank, which is the American Dragon's Den, yeah. where, where the, uh, you know, sharks are sitting there and they say, well, I don't really know what your product does because you've created a name that, that ha makes no sense or mm. something to that effect. So in American, you know, marketers are saying, name your products what they do and the strong trade, you know, trademark law is is very much counter to that. Yeah. Well, some years back, I registered something in the United Kingdom, uh, a mark GQ, <laughs> and on its face, it didn't describe at all what the goods were. Some of the listeners may be familiar with GQ. Of course. Uh, but over the years, um, it started off as a publication called Gentlemen's Quarterly. And yes. when you see that, you understand the illusion. But GQ doesn't describe the goods. It's a two-letter mark. And uh, often the our trademark uh, hearing officers used to try to rule out marks because they would say that it describes the content of the <laughs> item. Well, don't, don't, don't tell me that happened to you. That uh, Oh. Frequently, I've had uh, this <laughs> well, done I mean, for in this, but for class this 16 goods. But for this application? Yes. 
It's what interested gentlemen. <laughs> That's very descriptive in some people's view. Um, and you've got to have to um, deal with these sorts of approaches from uh, hearing officers who have their parameters and uh, grammatic and semantic fineness is not really in their comfort zone. Understood completely. For an acronym like that, in the United States, if it's an acronym, you actually need to define the acronym in the application. Is that required? No. In the, okay. No, but it was a two-letter mark, and obviously sure. two-letter marks have their own inherent difficulties. Of course. Yeah. Of course. The other thought that I, I had was when you are discussing a new, a new mark with a client, is there a particular operating procedure you have at the beginning, doing a trademark search, finding, uh, or do you want to just take the mark and file it and, and then discuss it with the client? Well, uh, or does that I have depend to be very on the careful, mark? And, yeah, and, because yes. it, this is a question of economics. Always. So if you want to establish a new trademark, you could probably spend an awful lot of money searching. Diageo is the famous example of Guinness looking for a very distinctive group brand and they spent millions on it over a very long time. I have an example of a mark which will remain nameless where my clients launched uh, a software product and uh, they were held to ransom because in a small county in Germany there was a person there who had produced software which because of its name, clashed with my client's Europe-wide launch. They had not done a Diageo-type search. Right. And because they were launching this product, they had to pay a very large uh, ransom to buy this little business's mark in the middle of a tiny county in Germany. Sure. So an unregistered mark can stop the uh, launch of a product, even though you have applied for registration, and if you haven't got that registration at the time you launch, then you are vulnerable to being ransomed. In my view, I tell the client that you can pay for a Rolls-Royce search. It's still not even guaranteed. You have, um, it's certainly uh, my experiences with Spanish agents, they will... Uh, try to assert that marks fall foul under the what our equivalent section 10 to the trademarks at 1994 that it is a similar mark and sufficiently similar to be able to block the application and usually it involves a negotiation which is rather expensive so if you do an online search and you do a company's register search in your own domestic territory, you can assess what the market is as a sort of a first sort of finger in the wind test, and then you commit the registration fee. Having done the finger in the wind test, you then are willing to argue that up to the point of opposition. If an opposition appears, you look at it, and then your client takes a view whether or not to cut its losses and find another mark, or to persist with this one and fight the opposition. Uh, uh, with some, if, as long as you are fairly confident that you can show a distinction between the two marks, you should be okay. But an, the uh, emergence of an earlier mark tends to be fatal. 
and in the United States, it's very analogous. Yeah, I, I have seen registrations in the U.S. that say things like uh, "acceptable in all" or, or uh, "good in all fifty states except for the counties of X, Y, and Z in Minnesota," <laughs> because there's a company that somehow had discovered that this application was going through. Never, never registered their common law trademark, yep. but they've only operated in three counties in, right. in, in Minnesota. So there is, we, we have the same in the European Union. You can um, uh, break down to individual company um, applications, and uh, uh, there have been cases where in the uh, European uh, Intellectual Property Office, you, well, somebody who uses a mark in Finland can block its use in Ireland. But there's nothing to stop people making a Madrid application for other territories. And you, it's not, the Madrid application is not coterminous with the European Union jurisdiction. So uh, you may wish to go territorially. All right. John, thank you so much for coming in today. And it was a blast. We are going to go and sample some coffee here to get over <laughs> this new travel agency <laughs> slogan jet lag. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anthony. It's been Thank a pleasure. You. This has been the Law & Business Podcast. Visit VernaLaw.com for more episodes. To contact Verna Law PC, send an email to Anthony at VernaLaw.com or call 914-358-6401.